let's get in here this morning to uh, God's Word. I do have, as is usual, uh, a lot for us. Um, we're going to be in Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Uh, raising my hand just because if you need a Bible, uh, go ahead and join me. Raise a hand and uh, we'll get one to you. We love to make sure that what we're doing up here on the stage or up from the front is uh, rooted in God's Word. And um, I want you to follow along as best as you can. And if it helps you, I realize that the handout today is not um, what I typically would give you in terms of main points and things. So be always be aware if you wanted to download the uh, manuscript that I kind of teach from, by and large, uh, that becomes available online at 8 o'clock, usually Sunday mornings. So you can get that on your phone if it helps you to see those uh, verses and things that I'm going to be looking at. Um, but with that... Let's read, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dive in. Matthew 28, so it's the last chapter, the last verses of, of, um, of Matthew's gospel, really. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray, guys. God, we are sojourners en route to the new heavens and new earth. What that means necessarily is that we all are hurting broken people because we're broken on the inside and we live in a world that's broken on the outside. We're not yet home. We're not yet fully conformed to the image and glory of our Savior. We're in progress. We're in route. And Lord, I know that that means we come in this room in desperate need. I mean, our story right now is with Israel in the wilderness, journeying through to the promised land. So we need water to come from Iraq in these moments. We need bread to come to us down from heaven in these moments. We need the Holy Spirit to take the word, apply it to us, nourish us, convict us, comfort us, challenge us, equip us. And help us to see our living hope. Help us to see the one who's finished the race, who's already there, who's gone ahead to prepare a place, who's equipping and keeping and helping us along the way. Jesus, that's why we meet. That's why we're here on Sundays, to give you the glory, certainly, but also to say we desperately need you. Be glorified again by coming and meeting our needs. Forgive us our sins. Give us our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. This is the sojourner's prayer, and that's why we're here, God. So would you speak now? I I ask these things in your name. Amen. Okay, we are now uh, in the fourth and final, I said final now, fourth and final uh, sermon in a little mini-series we've been running lately entitled uh, Introducing and Multiplying DNA Groups. Um, I originally thought there'd be two, then I said there'd be three, now I said there'd be four, and today is going to be the end. However, I will say this, there are still going to be some practicals that I couldn't uh, fully work out uh, that will be coming to you in a, in a couple of weeks. I wanted to get a little booklet and things for your reference so you could see how to be involved and all of that, um, and that will be coming soon enough, uh, but I could not stay up any later last night than I already had. Uh, so uh, I appreciate your patience. When I get back uh, a couple weeks from today, then we'll, we'll kind of tackle a few of those administrative things, maybe probably just an announcement before the service or something like that. 
But fourth and final, introducing multiplying DNA groups. Uh, let me quickly catch you up to speed. If you're just jumping in, you're like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. Uh, let me at least just uh, orient you for a moment and then we'll dive in. Uh, the first sermon in this series, we looked at Matthew 28, in particular that text that I just read and really only drew out uh, one main point from that. And that was that if you notice, Jesus gathers his disciples and then he says to them, go and make more disciples. And so the conclusion was, disciples of Jesus are to be busy making disciples of Jesus. That's what our mission is. That's the point of my life. And then the, the, the real pressing question became, well, are we doing that? And what does it look like as a church to pursue that sort of thing together? And that's really where what we're calling DNA groups comes into play. It's really just my attempt to provide some sort of uh, orienting vision, supporting structure for kind of pursuing this call to be a disciple of Jesus, busy making disciples of Jesus. You don't have to use everything I'm doing here. You don't even have to plug in. I, I don't personally care all that much. All I care about is that we be a church busy doing that. If you're already doing it, great. Take what's helpful here, use it. If you're not doing it, come on, let's have the conversation and let's get involved. Let's get involved, not just in Mercy Hill's mission. Who cares about that? But only insofar as it connects to the mission that's been given us by our Lord. To be a disciple, busy making disciples. That's the point of this mini-series and what DNA groups are all about. Now... I defined DNA groups uh, as follows. They're smaller groups of committed people who meet on a consistent basis to, here's our acronym, discover, nurture, and apply Christ together until He is all in all. I took the second sermon and just kind of drilled into that and just unpacked it all, paying a special attention to uh, those three basic steps. Discover, nurture, apply. Get something of Jesus in my head. Get Him in my heart through repentance and faith and, and watch it come out my life uh, via my hands. Um, And then last week, I took us through a a biblical model of change that I have found supremely helpful, coming from Jeremiah 17 and the image that he gives us there. Not going to go into all that this morning again, but gave us the, the, the kind of model for change or growth or renewal in Christ's image that uh, stands behind and informs my understanding of what it means to discover, nurture, and apply. Um, so I'd encourage you, if you missed any of these sermons along the way, uh, they're all online, uh, go give them a, a listen and let me know what you think. Okay, now as a way of wrapping all of this up, here's what I want to do this morning. I simply want to take uh, from much of what we've said thus far and and draw out five guiding principles uh, for these DNA groups. I just want to bring in uh, five guiding principles for us to think about as we approach this idea of, of making disciples or pursuing Jesus together and growing in his image more and more. Um, these are far from exhaustive, but they at least give us something. And if, if you're just kind of stepping in for it this morning, you could think of it like this. We're after, what does it look like to care for another soul and to lead him to Jesus and to help, to truly help them grow in him? Maybe encounter him for the first time, then grow as a disciple. What does it mean to be a wise lover of souls? That's essentially what we're after here. That's what these five guiding principles are really going to be about. They're going to help govern our our thinking about these sorts of groups. So, um, well, I should say, after I get done with the five principles, I'll give you a few brief uh, practical remarks that kind of flow out from them. Uh, so first, guiding principle number one, God's agenda for our lives is change. I want you to hear that again. God's agenda for your life and mine is change. Now, here actually is the one thing that we've really been saying all along. Uh, but I want to press it even further. I want to press it into your bones so you just get it. That God is after your transformation, your renewal, your, 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 your growth in godliness, your change. His agenda for your life is to, to bring you into conformity with the image of His Son. To actually set you free and, and make you a lover of God and a lover of others. Instead of kind of stuck in, lost in love for self. Concern for self. 
The goal of your salvation is your transformation. Jesus gets a hold of your life. He wants to remake it, recast it, renew it. That's something we've been saying all along, but what I want to do is give you some texts. I want to, to put some verses on this, uh, gathering some of the verses we looked at really in the first sermon and then adding some new ones, just so you can see, this is what he's after in my life. And what this means is, is if we gather together in, say, DNA groups or smaller groups of committed people that, that are you know wanting to hang out and do something, and all we're doing is kind of drinking coffee, talking about life, that's awesome for what it is. But that's not discipleship. That's not pursuing Jesus necessarily together. We know we're pursuing Jesus and following after him when we start to look more and more like him because that's his agenda for yours and my life. Not once saved, always saved, live like the devil, go to heaven, no big deal. But growth, conformity in his image, renewal. Let me show you this. It's where we get the idea, remember, of DNA. That's what we're calling it this. He wants to change us at the deepest chromosomal level. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. I'm just going to blow through these, so I just want you to hear kind of the full weight of them. Let them impact you. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, who's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, namely Jesus. So Paul sums up kind of what your salvation is all about. It's to take you from Adam, where you fell, where you were lost in sin, and to now bring you into Jesus and reconform you to his image. That's the point of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, was to ascend, pour out his spirit, so that then you and I can start to actually look something like our heavenly father, born again into the family, renewed in his Image, just as we bore the image of Adam, we'll bear the image of Christ, if in fact we're in him. His agenda for our lives is change. Second Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He gives the Spirit, why? To comfort you on your hard days? Yes. To help you feel a little better about, about what's going on in your given situation? Absolutely. But ultimately, He gives the Spirit to transform you. To change you into the Father's image. And as you follow behind Him, one degree of glory to the next, we're moving. We're looking more like Him. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. You've put off the old self. With its practices, Paul writes, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, change. You come to Christ, it's not kind of like getting in a little little kiddie pool and hanging out in some nice warm water or jacuzzi. It's like getting into the rapids. It's going somewhere. And he says, listen, the old self is, is, is being put off. The new self is being put on and we're being renewed. We're being renewed. We're in the water and it's flowing. And we're going with it. Now, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. You're going to be like him. That's where all of this is going. And to make it even clearer, Romans 8.29, For those whom He, God, foreknew, He also predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of His Son. Anyone in here look like Jesus yet? Anyone in here feel like in every aspect of your life, just through and through looking like Jesus? The answer is no, right? But that is the destiny of the children of God. That's where He's taking us. And it's happening moment by moment. We are growing His agenda for your life, whether you like it or not, right? Is change. To set you free in Jesus so you can look more and more like Him. More, more and more like uh, uh, the one uh, you were created to be like. God. Now, all those I just gathered from, I think, Sermon 1 in this series. Let me give you a few more new ones. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now here it is. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why did He save you? 
not because of your good works, not because of your good looks, but by his grace. But that grace is going to work unto righteousness, unto good works. Saved by grace, not by works, but saved unto works. Does that make sense? That's what you see. God is at work on you so much so that, that Paul here would say you are his workmanship. He is, he's getting his hands dirty in your life. Why? So that he can see you walk out these good works that he's prepared for you to walk in. First Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, if you're anything like me, you're regularly wondering, gosh, what's God's will for my life? I, I, I just want to know, should I go here? Should I go there? What is your will? Show me. Why are you always, give me a magic eight ball or something that I can kind of, do we, do we still make those things? I don't Sometimes the things that come to my mind when I'm preaching, I have no idea why. You know those things, right? We're always like, you always keep shaking it till you get the answer you want. But, Give me one of those so I know your will. Well, he gave us one of those right here. And he says, this is God's will for you. Your sanctification, or in other words, your holiness, your growth in godliness, your change, your transformation. That's his will for your life. That you start to look more and more like him in every sphere. Through and through. Or, finally, from the mouth of our Lord Himself, talking about what it means to be a disciple. Listen to this, Luke 6.40. Bob reminded me of this one, and I figured I'd bring it in right here. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. What does discipleship to Jesus mean? You're going to look more and more like Him. You're not done. You're not fully trained. It's not over until you look like Him. His agenda for your life for our lives, is change. And I think we need to know that as we kind of gather in DNA groups or whatever it might be uh, to pursue Jesus together. We've got to have that common goal that what we're after here ultimately is what God is after in our lives, which is growth and godliness, renewal in His image. I want to look like my Savior, look like my Father. God's agenda for our lives is change. Guiding principle number two. You ready for it? The vine dresser is always at work. The vine dresser is always at work. Uh, now, all of these principles are going to build off of one another, kind of flow into uh, the, the next as we kind of go along, and you'll see this. I'll help you see this. But here we go. Here we have in the first principle that God's agenda for our lives is change. And we kind of gathered it from some of the texts I read, perhaps. But we see that actually God doesn't just kind of leave us to ourselves to try to work this out. Like, here's my agenda. Get it done. Here's my, here's my honey-do list. Now, you do it, honey. No, it's I am here to help you. I am going to see it, that, see to it that this change, that this transformation takes place. Not only is God's agenda for our lives change, but the vine dresser, God, is always at work. Always at work in your life. Now, there are a lot of verses I could bring out here, many which have brought incredible comfort to me through the years as I've struggled with my salvation and the state of my heart and, and, and things before God and what was going to happen to my future if I didn't, you know, if I fell away or all these various things. Let me just read you a few of these and I'm going to camp out on one for a moment. Philippians 1.6. I bet you've been comforted by some of these yourselves. Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. He who's begun a work is going to complete that work. In other words, he's always working and he's not going to stop until it's done. His agenda for your life has changed and he's moving for it right now in this room, this moment. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Just listen to these. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. You say, here's my will for you, your sanctification. Now here comes God to say, I'm going to work for that. Now may the God of peace himself 
sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Love it. Just sit there. Just string up your hammock and hang out in that verse. It's amazing. It's just like rest for our souls. Again, I have no idea where these things come from. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> you tell where I want to be right now. <laughs> Hebrews 12, 10 through 11. God disciplines us for our good. This text set me free, brothers and sisters. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He's saying, I know it hurts. I know life in a fallen world hurts. I know stuff in your life is hard. But I'm telling you, God is at work. The Father is disciplined, and He's doing things in your life to see fruit come about. He's on the move. Hebrews thirteen twenty through 11. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us. There it is. That which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God is working through Jesus Christ. He's working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Your sanctification, your holiness, your change. The vine dresser never sleeps. The vine dresser is always at work. Now, John 15, 1 through 2 is actually where I'm getting the term the vine dresser. And I wanted to camp there for a moment. John 15, verses 1 and 2. Jesus says this, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that, um, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I wonder if you caught that. It doesn't say of the good branch that's bearing fruit, Ah, finally, I got some fruit. My work here is done. It doesn't say that. What, what, what um, Jesus seems to be saying is, listen, once that good fruit starts to come, the vine dresser's work is only just beginning. He prunes that you may bear more. He's not satisfied with the fruit that's already there. He wants more for you. Not he wants more for himself and he's selfish or something weird like that that we project onto God. No, he wants more freedom. He wants more of his son in you because where his son is, there is life and light and joy and all the fruits of the Spirit coming out. That's what he wants for you. He's not satisfied with less than full conformity because that's where full freedom and life and joy are found. And you and I would go, I'm pretty satisfied with the fruit I'm producing right now. Can't we just stop? I don't want to do any more. Please, this is hard. He's saying, trust me. I have more for you. I have more for you. The vine dresser is always at work. So this means that if you're in Christ and you're sitting across the table from me and, and if you're a part of, say, maybe my DNA group or something like that and we're chatting about life, I don't even have to know. Before we even sit down, I don't even have to know what's been going on this week, the details. I don't even need to know, you know, your backstory, nothing. I already know on the authority of Scripture that if Jesus is in your life, he is working right now for your change, for your growth, for your transformation. He's on the move. I don't have to know anything about you. And I know that. Because he said it. And our job in say DNA groups is to come together, help one another locate. Because don't you sometimes feel like God's not here. He's not doing anything. He's left me long ago. Right? I don't see it. We come together. We say, no, no, no. Let's locate where he is on the move. 
Let's partner with him in that together. Because I promise you one thing. He's there. The vine dresser doesn't take vacation time. The vine dresser doesn't punch his clock and go home. The vine dresser is always at work. Guiding principle number three. Your situation is for your sanctification. Perhaps that's a confusing way of putting it. Maybe it's a memorable way of putting it once you understand it. Your situation is for your sanctification. So we've seen God's agenda for your life is change. Uh, We've seen that the vine dresser uh, is always at work. Now we start to see something, something of how he's at work. Your situation is for your sanctification. Uh, What I mean by this is God, one of the ways he's at work in your life, one of the ways he's going to work for transformation and change and renewal in Christ's image is going to be by way of, of, of sovereignly engineering circumstances that expose, bring out your heart and force you to kind of move towards him for a deeper encounter of his grace, his love, so that he can bring healing in a place that he had not yet touched. That's what your situation brings out. This is what we called, if you were here last week, the idea of heat. This is the idea of the heat that comes in and and from outside our circumstances, the tough stuff in your life, or even the good stuff that's tempting you to think you're all that. But the stuff outside of us that, 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 that we have to face, the trials, the temptations, the difficulties of our circumstances, the heat, that stuff, the situation that you are facing right now is for your sanctification. It's for your change and transformation. God is at work right there all around you. He's at work. The quintessential example of this is Israel in the wilderness. When God brings them into a difficult situation there, remember he brings them out of Egypt, they go, hurrah, our God is awesome. They cross the Red Sea and nothing can stop him. Oh my gosh, we're in the wilderness. What in the world is wrong with this God? He's so mean. Now we're going to be here for so long. Why couldn't we just take in the quick route to Canaan? What are we doing out here? The heat's turned up. The situation is hard. I don't like this very much. Does God give us a reason? Why the heat? Why the wilderness? Why this? He does. He does. In Deuteronomy 8.2, this is what he says. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Do you hear that? He's, he's, he's turning up the heat. He's using the situations around you to expose your heart, test it, see what's in there, and then bring deeper healing as you encounter Him. And that's why I prayed in the beginning. I mean, I have him thinking about the wilderness story. And remember, they're like, there's no water. There's no food. He goes, there's no water. Okay, strike the rock and water's going to flow. There's no food. Okay, let's get the bread down from heaven or here come the, the quail or whatever. And it's like, He's trying to show them. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the words that proceed from the mouth of God, right? He's trying to lead them into a deeper reliance on Him instead of stuff. And He has to tinker with the situation and turn up the heat a bit to get us to go there. Otherwise, we don't. Otherwise, we don't. And the healing stays surface and it never gets in. Now, what this means is that all of life, and I want you to catch this one, I'll linger here for a moment. What this means is that all of life is the stage for discipleship. All of life is the stage for discipleship. You, if you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus, if you want to grow into his image or be transformed, you want to, you want to, you want to start to become more and more a follower of Christ through and through. Well, I'll tell you, you don't have to go through some big stepwise process or curriculum. You don't have to go to some far off distant country or something like that. All you need to do is learn to meaningfully embrace, engage, trust, rely on Jesus in the midst of what you are currently facing. 
That's what discipleship is. All of life, all of your life, the situation around you is the stage for discipleship. You don't got to go anywhere else. You're right here and he's working and he's exposing the heart and he wants you to become a deeper, more abiding disciple. He's at work right now. Your situation right now is for your sanctification. This is... What I think Jesus means, actually, when he says to his disciples in Matthew 6.34, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Don't worry about it. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. And then he goes on and he explains, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now that, at first read or listen, may seem a little bit confusing, but let me, I think, make sense of what he's saying here. He's saying... Don't worry about whether you'll have enough faith to fearlessly face a cancer diagnosis that may come for you uh, years in the future. Now, I recognize some people may have it right now. That's a different story. That's your trouble for the day. But we're talking right now about all the projections that we do. And he's saying, don't worry whether you'll have, you know, faith to face the cancer diagnosis years from now. Or, or don't worry if you'll have the strength, you know, and resolve in Jesus to, to, to get through the downturn in the economy that may be coming and the effects of that on your bank account and budget. Or don't worry about, you know, the loss of that loved one that may happen someday and, and you're, you're deeply concerned. What that will do to your life and schedule and everything else. He said, listen, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, here's what I want you to worry about right now. What's right in front of you? If you learn to press into me, speaking for Jesus here, if you learn to press into me in the midst of what you are currently facing, today's troubles, then you will be setting up habits and patterns and a deeper abiding relationship that will help you get through tomorrow's troubles. Does that make sense? Our job is not to race ahead of Jesus and try to figure out how we can become perfect uh, with or without Him. We're going to get there. Our job is to let him do his work and he's going to do it by way of the situations he's bringing into your life. Some of them right now are devastating. You say, no way. I don't. One day at a time, can you abide? Others of us, I mean, you recognize how hard this is when you really break it down. Others of us, it might not be the significant thing. Your heat, your situation may simply be Bay Area traffic. Seriously. Can you learn to abide in Jesus in the midst of Bay Area traffic on your way to work? Some guy cuts you off and everything in you wants to curse him, but you learn to repent, reroute in Christ, abide in him there, trust in him for what you're currently facing. And instead of cursing, you bless and maybe even say a prayer through gritted teeth, but God's still working on me. That's all right. That's a win. We're looking more like Jesus. You get there and the stuff that you're currently facing in that, those present moments, you go through that and you'll be ready for the stuff that comes tomorrow. That's what he's saying. Now, the question that we need to take into our DNA groups then is where is the place I'm feeling heat today? If I know that God's agenda for my life is change, and I know that he's always at work, that the vine dresser is always at work. And I know that one of the ways he's going to work on my heart is through the situations and the heat and bringing it out. The question is, where is where's the heat? Where's the tough stuff? Where are the trials? Where am I feeling tempted? Here again, I don't have to know you. I don't have to know you to know that you are facing these things right now. Sitting across the table from you, I don't have to know the details. I don't have to know what's going on. But I do know one thing. You're being tempted, tried, tested. Life is hard. There are areas where you're wanting to kind of root yourself in false gospels and other things, idols. And you're, you're wanting to go there because you're feeling it. And then, and then you're, God's wanting to call you back. And He's trying to expose and bring you in a deeper encounter of Him. I know that. I'm not trying to be arrogant. But I'm just trying to be faithful to the text and what God already says. Now... This is um, why, by, by the way, every suggested framework uh, that you have in the little handout I gave you, these things called frameworks that I just developed to try to help 
frame the discussion for a gathering that you may have with your DNA groups. Um, But every suggested framework, if you notice, begins with really a question about situation. What's been good? What's been hard? And there's a strategy. There's a there's a purpose behind that. It's not just social convention. Hey, let's. How are you? Let's catch up. Okay, let's get into the real stuff. No, I believe the real stuff is happening in the stuff that's going on in your lives and how what's been good, what's been hard. That's the situation that God is going to use to do some of His deepest work in your life. And whatever we may study in the scriptures, whatever we may talk about after that, I, I, I think those are the places that God is going to want to work. And those are the places that we want to, to discuss. All of life is the stage for discipleship. Now, there's one more thing I want to say about this. Because there's something funny I read a while back. I had not been able to forget it. I've always been wanting to bring it in one way or another. Uh, because it kind of touches on a little bit of a pet peeve of mine and something that I would love to speak against as far as developing a, a culture in this church. I want you to hear this and then I don't want to be this. Okay, let me read it to you and I'll back into it, but I think you'll see where I'm going. Uh, Now, I should say this is from the Babylon Bee, which is a Christian kind of satire publication. Okay, so they're going to act like this is a real reporting event. It's not. But listen to this report is the title, the headline, every single person at church doing and I quote, fine. The results of Pastor Mike's informal survey are in. Every single member of Bayfront Methodist Church is doing either fine, good, or real good. When the pastor pressed for details, members responded with some combination of, no, really, I'm doing great. Or else, yeah, things are good, things are good. The survey was conducted as the pastor faithfully stood at the doors of the church after the Sunday service, shaking the hands of each churchgoer as they left and asking how they were doing. It's really quite spectacular, the pastor told reporters Tuesday. You would think, given the state of our fallen world, that at least one person would be going through a crisis or battling some kind of indwelling sin that they need help with, but not at this church. We're all doing fine, it seems. Praise the Lord. Prayer requests for the week included several reports of distant friends and family that were struggling with sin, but nobody in the church reported needing prayer for themselves. Prayer? Me? One congregate said to Pastor Mike, a puzzled expression on her face, No, I, I mean, you can pray for me generally, but really, I'm, I'm not in much need of anything right now. I'm doing awesome, really. She was later spotted at a coffee shop bawling her eyes out over some personal struggle, according to sources. <laughs> Reporters then asked Pastor Mike how he was doing. Who, me? Oh, yeah, I'm doing just fine. He confirmed. <laughs> now, you know what they're getting at, don't you? You've been a part of it. You've seen it. We've done this, right? How are you doing fine? Where we hide. We hide ourselves from others. We put on our Sunday best and we come in and kind of get this mistaken notion that as Christians, what that's supposed to mean, I guess, is now I no longer struggle with, with depression, anxiety, whatever. I no longer struggle with sin. I've got things together. My, my shirt is pressed. I mean, that would be a day for me if I ever pressed a shirt. My idea of an iron is to put a wet rag into the dryer with the shirt that's wrinkly. Steam it. It's perfect. Anyways, I, I look good. I, I, I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm all dressed up. I, I got that exterior thing going on. And we don't let anybody in to what's really going on. We use Christian, you know, platitudes like, uh, hey, how are you? I'm too blessed to be stressed. You heard that one? I got family in the South and they really do say that. I, I mean, you know, too blessed to be stressed. You know, I want to tell you, I mean, maybe we have said that. Maybe we thought we're supposed to say that. I want to tell you, I think that's thoroughly unbiblical. I'm sorry to break it to you. I think it's thoroughly unbiblical on the basis of everything we've been looking at. I think a statement like that is what, what theologians would call overrealized eschatology, which just simply means you're claiming for yourself now something that will only be true of you in the end. When you're fully conformed to Jesus, when you're with Him in glory. That's when that statement will be true. Too blessed to be stressed, no more stress in my life. That will only happen in the new heavens and new earth. Do you understand me? On this side of heaven, there is going to be stress. And it's important that we learn to admit that to ourselves and others. 
Because that is the place where God is turning up the heat. That is the place where God is wanting to do His deepest work in your life. And if we resist that, if we refuse to admit that, if we don't want to talk about that, if we just say, I'm fine, no really, I'm fine, no really, pray for my grandma way over there, pray for but me, I'm fine. If we just go there, then nothing meaningful will happen. God can't get at that. He can't change it. You feel me? It's in the places of heat and stress that God is looking to do His best work. Your situation is for your sanctification. You're going to be stressed. You better be stressed. And then you take that stress and you get your brothers and your sisters on it with you. And you pray it out. And you minister to one another with humility, love, kindness. You go to Jesus together. And you watch Him change you there. It's okay not to be okay. Hopefully you've heard that thrown around. If I have to have a Christian platitude, that's the one I want. It's okay to not be okay. God already knows you're not okay. He's just waiting for you to catch up to that realization. Finally admit it so He can do work on your heart and bring you to true true healing. Make you truly okay. Alright. Guiding principle number four. Number four. The heart of the person is the heart of the matter. The heart of the person is the heart of the matter. Now, here again, this principle continues to build on those that have come before it. And there's probably hints laced throughout that you can see why this is connected. Um, But we saw this specifically there in Deuteronomy 8, didn't we? God brought Israel into the heat of the wilderness. Why? Ultimately, to know what was in your what? Heart. I've got to get at your heart. Now, for a moment, I want to return to Jeremiah 17, which, again, my apologies, I couldn't go through all that we looked at last week. But for the moment, I want to return to it because I wonder if last week you, you, you kind of caught on to this jarring flow of thought in verses 5 through 10. It, it, was, it was weird because what we saw is you got Jeremiah who, in the first three verses, kind of like picks up a paintbrush. And he does this beautiful kind of picture, this, this wonderful uh, sort of painting uh, with a, a, a thorn bush and then a fruit tree and a stream of living water. And you're like, man, am I watching a Bob Ross episode right now? This is nice. But then it's like all of a sudden, that paintbrush, as it were, as we come to verses uh, 9 and 10, almost becomes like this arrow. Like it's no longer this nice picturesque thing. All of a sudden, he turns that thing into an arrow and he puts it on, the, on his bowstring and he just lets it fly. And he lets out one of the most rugged, one of the most hardcore statements about the state of the human heart that the Bible has uh, recorded within its binds or within its pages. Or cover, I think is what I was looking for. Sorry. But let me read this to you. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? I the Lord search the heart and test the mind. To give every man according to his ways. According to the fruit of his deeds. Now it seems like a strange transition at first. And I encourage you go back and read it. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. Talking about trees. Talking about water. And then he goes. And you. You are so sick and evil. Your heart can't even be known. You go. What? I was enjoying this picture Bob. What are you doing? Well, when you stop and think about it, you get, you start to make sense of what he's doing, don't you? What he's doing there is he's identifying for us the critical factor. The critical factor that will determine whether we're going to be thorns, whether we're going to be that thorn bush bearing thorns, or we're going to be that fruit tree bearing fruit. The critical factor? Your heart. And how it stands in relation to God. And that living stream. So it comes out of that, it seems surprising, it seems jarring, but he's going right for the jugular. For If you want to be not a thorn bush, but a fruit tree, if you want fruit in your life, we've got to talk about, we've got to get to the heart. The heart of the person is the heart of the matter. 
What this means when you come together in a DNA group is that we're attempting to do at a fundamental level what we might call heart work. Oh, absolutely. We'll talk about the situation. We'll talk about the weather. We'll talk about what's been good, what's been hard. But then we're going to go, now, how are you in the middle of that? Where's your heart in the middle of that? What's God bringing out in the middle of that? Where are you tempted? Where are you tried? Where are you stressed? Let's go there, because if we don't go there, we will not get to the place of lasting change. It's there that God wants to encounter us. It's there that God wants to change us. Now, there are two implications that come out for us, um, uh, for us to consider as we think about what it might look like to do heart work in uh, DNA groups. Implication number one, if we're working on the heart, Implication number one, heart work is tough work. It's going to be tough. Okay? It's going to be tough. Jeremiah just says it. Again, let me read it to you. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What I get from that is if we're going to try to go there together with one another, it's going to be hard. There's going to be bobbing and weaving going on. There's going to be distracting and deflecting going on. There's going to be uh, kind of self-protection uh, and blame-shifting going on. We don't want, we don't want our heart to be seen exposed. We don't want others to see it. We don't want to see it ourselves. There's this deception to it. Now, I know we, you know, who are in Christ, Jeremiah 31, I mean, a lot of that, uh, uh, that book leads to that place of there's going to be that heart transformation in the New Covenant where the law is written on our hearts. But when we get to the New Testament and Paul says, like some of those texts we looked at, you're putting off your old self and putting on the new in Christ by the Spirit. What he's saying is there's still remaining stuff in this heart. There's still stuff that needs to be put to death. Still stuff that's going to be twisted and desires and motivations that are going to be... It's still going to be tough. It's still going to be tough. And the renewal process, if it's going to be lasting, has to go there. Has to get there. Implication number two. Heart work is tender work. We know... If we're working on the heart and the heart is what Jeremiah says it is, then it's going to be hard and we have to be bold and courageous and not settle for surface conversations, but attempt to go deeper with one another. And it's going to be tricky. But we also know that if we're working on the heart, it means we have to do it with the utmost care and tenderness. It means that you don't just kind of march on in there and start poking and prodding. Think with me about this. Um, you've probably watched some of those doctor shows, right? You've seen when they're going to do the heart surgery. God forbid you've ever been behind the curtain yourself or whatever doing that, but um, or going through that. But we've seen this in these shows, right? Where there's a big difference between the doctor's approach to, oh, I'm going to treat your skin rash or something, and I'm going to treat your heart. I'm going to do surgery on your heart. You watch in there and all of a sudden they're cleaning everything, every aspect of the room, the utensils, the surgeon himself. They're washing all this many times that, you know, they got to step in and do all these weird things because they can't touch. And then everything is, everything is sanitized. Why? Because they're working on the heart. And in a spiritual sense, that's the same sort of thing. When we come to one another and we engage one another in meaningful, deep conversations, we got to know what we're doing. We're not just kind of marching on in there. And cutting, I mean, thinking about the, 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 the surgeon again. A good doctor uh, in, that, in, that, in that operating room can heal, but a bad doctor can kill. A careless doctor can kill. And so it is with the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, or which is sharper than a two-edged sword, the author of Hebrews said. You can bring healing with the Word, or you can just cut and destroy people. You've probably been on the other side of some of this. And here's what I'd say. I mean, one of the reasons why, and there are probably many, one of the reasons why we, we resort to this idea of too, uh, too blessed to be stressed. <laughs> you know, sparkle teeth. One of the reasons we resort to that, one might be pride. We don't want people to see our junk and we don't want people to think any less of us or whatever. Another reason might be because we've gone into the operating room with doctors that have just ripped us up. 
We, 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 we went there before with people. And they just use scripture and such. Oh, I know what you need. Here's what you need. You need Jeremiah, whatever. You need Romans, whatever. You need, yeah, now go home and fix it. But done. Got it. Good. Now come back. You're still dealing with that? Are you serious? I gave you the solution. Come on. Right? You've been hurt. Hurt there. And so you learn to go, not going there. Too blessed to be stressed. You're not getting in. We don't want to be those people. We want to be people. Now, are we going to hurt one another? Yes. Am I going to hurt you? Yes. So there has to be covenant and commitment that wraps around our failures. But, man, can we do better at this? Yes. Can we do better at, at slowing down, not jumping in with the surgeon's scalpel or whatever it is, but working tenderly, probing gently, listening, caring, putting an arm around, walking with a person? It feels so different, doesn't it? Now, this really kind of leads to um, guiding principle number five. And this is really the last one I'll give, and I'll kind of direct you to the handout as I close. But uh, guiding principle number five, good questions are a great start. Good questions are a great start. Um, This last principle, as with the others, follows from all those that have come before it. And I want you to kind of see it. If I know God's agenda for your life is change, and I know He's always at work to bring that change about, and I know that one of the primary means of accomplishing this work is the situations that He puts you in. And I know that these situations, good and hard, bring out your heart so that it can be brought back to Jesus in more meaningful ways. And I know that heart work is both tough and tender work. Then I will see the great importance of asking good questions. If I know that heart work is tough and it is tender, then I will see the importance of asking good questions. And I'll show you why that is. Good questions are suited to deal with the toughness of the human heart. Okay, They're suited to deal with the toughness of heart work. They help us get inside another person's situation. How many times do we think we kind of understand or know until you kind of go there and you ask questions. You get inside the situation. You start to see what's going on in the motivations or how were, what were the reactions on the surface and what was underneath that. The only way you get there... It's through asking good questions. The only other alternative is to make assumptions from the outside that you already know what's going on in the heart. That's horrible. If the heart is tough and it's going to bob and weave, one of the ways you can corner it, so to speak, is good questions that bring out some of this stuff. Keeping with the doctor analogy, it's almost like a good questions are almost kind of like an x-ray machine. They bring out into the open things that otherwise would likely remain hidden. In fact... Um, last week I borrowed the entire you know, model for biblical change that I laid out for you from David Pallison in a class I took from him at Westminster Theological Seminary. Well, he also has an article, interestingly enough, entitled X-Ray Questions, Drawing Out the Whys and Wherefores of Human Behavior. And in this article, literally, all he does is list out questions that help you get underneath the skin to the heart. Because you're not going to know on the surface and you're not going to be able to get to the nuances of motivation and other things without good questions. It's like an x-ray machine. It can deal with some of the toughness of the human heart. And yet the wonderful thing about good questions is that not only do they help us draw out the heart of a person, but they do so in a way that is tender. Did you hear that? I paused for dramatic effect. They do so in a way that is tender. My guess is you've seen this play out in your experience. You've been a part of those groups or those just hanging out with a guy or whatever, someone who probably meant well. And they didn't come at you with questions. Maybe they asked an initial question, how are you? You shared you know, a few sentences of an answer and then they immediately jumped to assumptions in terms of what was going on and brought in that superficial advice. Oh yeah, they slapped scripture on it, but it felt like you'd been wounded rather than restored and healed. You didn't feel understood. You didn't feel known. Just You felt like a problem that they wanted to fix. I'm guilty of that, are you? I've done that. You see, here's what the, I, I bet you've been a part of it from the other side. As well, where someone asks you how you are, and that's just like the 
tip of the iceberg in terms of what they're going to want to, to ask and learn about. It's just the beginning. Tell me more. They just keep inviting more and asking more. They want to learn more about you. They want to walk with you. They want to put their arm around you. They want to ask. They want to listen before they speak, right? Like James tells us. And there's such a different feeling. There's something tender about it. Oh, they're doing heart work. They're doing some of the tough stuff, getting inside, but they're doing it in a way that they love me. And they're with me. They care about me. They know me. They understand me. When you bring Scripture into that place, gently, humbly, with compassion and empathy, changes the game. Doesn't it? I mean, there is a, there is a, a wrong way to be right. You may have brought the Scripture that person needs, but you did it in such a wrong way, like, let me tell you, right? Here it is. <clears throat> and then there's actually a, a, a right way to be wrong. What I mean is, you may bring a Scripture that this person goes, no, that's not really me. But if you've been there listening and caring... There's so much grace that covers that. If you, if you could tell a person loves you, at the end of the day, you're like, I don't really care what you said. I just want to hang out. Thank you. Thank you for caring and praying. Right? That's the different sort of feel that you get because of uh, the use of questions. There are few things that shut down a person's honest communication like another's quick assumptions and superficial advice. But on the contrary, there are few things that open up a person like good questions and a listening ear. The former is degrading and dehumanizing. It says, you need me to tell you. I got it figured out. You need me. The latter, the person who's going to ask questions, is actually rehumanizing and dignifying. Think about it. Saying, I know God's speaking to you. I know God's already at work in you. I know you're already thinking about these. What do you think? Before I just jump into what I think, where, what do you think? It dignifies the person, rehumanizes the person. Again, it deals with the toughness and the tenderness in a wonderful way. It's why I say good questions are a great start. Let me close this whole uh, piece here by reading to you from Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. I think it's wonderful. Here's what he says. It is tempting to think that insightful people have all the right answers. And in one sense, that is true. But it is also true that you don't get to the right answers without first asking the right questions. Our thinking always rides on the rails of our questions. Good thinkers like to walk around a topic and look at it from different angles. They like asking new questions and asking old questions in new ways. Good thinkers don't make uncorroborated assumptions. They don't allow themselves to think they know more than they actually do. If you want to help people to see brand new truths and old truths in brand new ways, you need to take on the habits of good thinkers. Asking good questions is one of the most important. When you bring well-constructed, creative, biblically-shaped questions to a person's life, you are doing more than getting to know them and uncovering where change is needed. You are, in fact, ministering to that person. When I ask you questions you would never ask yourself, I am teaching you to view yourself through biblical lenses. I'm doing something God can use to change you in fundamental ways. Asking good questions is vital to helping people to face who they really are and what they're really doing. Sounds like doing the tough heart work. As sinners, we all tend to recast our own history in self-serving ways. We hide behind the difficulty and pressures of the situation or the failures of others. We look for external explanations, not internal ones. We're more impressed with our righteousness than we are horrified at our sin. In other words, we need an (laughs) x-ray to get inside this. Because of this, we all need people who love us enough to ask, listen, and having listened, to ask more. This is not being intrusive. In the Messiah's hands, our questions can become keys that open people's prisons and cause them to rely on Christ in new and profound ways. Through our questions, Christ changes people. And with that, we bring these five guiding principles full circle. God's agenda for our lives is change, He's at work. Through the situation, exposing the heart, it's tough and tender, questions are suited, and they, in God's hands, they become keys that affect change that He uses to lead and renew. This is why 
um, the handout I gave you there, and this is where I'll, I'll close, um, really just has three suggested frameworks. So I imagine people kind of wonder, what would I do at a DNA? What does it even mean? I have a lot more to say about it, and it'll be in a little booklet that I'll put together hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Um, but for now, you can see these three frameworks that are right there that are just kind of a starting point. What, what, what would I do? And these frameworks are simply composed of what I hope are good questions that help us move towards discovering Jesus and nurturing Him in our hearts and applying Him to our lives. So you can take a look at those. You can read that at a later time and just know there's more that will be coming. We'll talk about uh, how you can be involved in the, the later weeks if you're interested. But with that, let me pray. Jesus, to think about your ministry and how often you actually used good questions to get people to think about themselves and to think about their state before you and what's really going on in their hearts. God, I pray that you would help us as a church uh, to be wise in the, in, in, in the loving and caring of souls. Now, that we would, we would know how to approach people in a way that, that, that sees through the externals, but, but doesn't jab a, a blade into it to get to the deeper parts, but knows how to get there gently. And I pray we'd have a culture in this church that's open and not afraid, trusts you, that knows your work and knows it's important that we let others in on that work, even if they're going to love us imperfectly. God, I pray that you would help us to be renewed in your image. Pray that you would help us to grow as your disciples. That we would be disciples busy making disciples for your glory and there in our good. It's in your name I pray. Amen.